Book Third, Chapter Third, Parts One to Three of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells. Book Third, Chapter Third, Parts One to Three. CHAPTER THE THIRD SOARING 1. For nearly all the time that my uncle was incubating and hatching Crest Hill, I was busy in the little transverse valley between the Great Beginning and Lady Grove with more and more costly and ambitious experiments in aerial navigation. This work was indeed the main substance of my life through all the great time of the Tono Bungay Symphony. I have told already how I came to devote myself to this system of inquiries, how, in a sort of disgust with the common adventure of life, I took up the dropped ends of my college studies, taking them up again with a man's resolution instead of a boy's ambition. From the first I did well at this work. It was, I think, largely a case of special aptitude, of a peculiar irrelevant vein of faculty running through my mind. It is one of those things men seem to have by chance that has little or nothing to do with their general merit, and which it is ridiculous to be either conceited or modest about. I did get through a very big mass of work in those years, working for a time with a concentrated fierceness that left little of such energy or capacity as I possess unused. I worked out a series of problems connected with the stability of bodies pitching in the air and the internal movements of the wind and I also revolutionized one leading part, at last, of the theory of explosive engines. These things are to be found in the Philosophical Transactions, the Mathematical Journal, the less frequently in one or two other such publications, and they needn't detain us here. Indeed, I doubt if I could write about them here. One acquires a sort of shorthand for one's notes and mind in relation to such special work. I have never taught nor lectured, that is to say, I have never had to express my thoughts about mechanical things in ordinary everyday language, and I doubt very much if I could do so now without extreme tedium. My work was, to begin with, very largely theoretical. I was able to attack such early necessities of verification as arose with quite little models, using a turntable to get the motion through the air and cane, whalebone, and silk as building material. But a time came when incalculable factors crept in, factors of human capacity, and factors of insufficient experimental knowledge when one must needs guess and try. Then I had to enlarge the scale of my operations, and soon I had enlarged them very greatly. I set to work almost concurrently on the balance and stability of gliders and upon the steering of inflated bags the latter a particularly expensive branch of work. I was no doubt moved by something of the same spirit of lavish expenditure that was running away with my uncle in these developments. Presently, my establishment above Lady Grove had grown to a painted wood chalet big enough to accommodate six men, and in which I would sometimes live for three weeks together, to a gasometer, to a motor house, to three big corrugated roofed sheds and lock-up houses to a stage from which to start gliders, to a workshop, and so forth. A rough road was made. We brought up gas from Cheaping and electricity from Woking, 
which place I found also afforded a friendly workshop for larger operations than I could manage. I had the luck also to find a man who seemed my heaven-sent second-in-command. Cawthope, his name was. He was a self-educated man. He had formerly been a sapper, and he was one of the best and handiest working engineers alive. Without him, I do not think I could have achieved half what I have done. At times, he has been not so much my assistant as my collaborator, and has followed my fortunes to this day. Other men came and went as I needed them. I do not know how far it is possible to convey to anyone who has not experienced it the peculiar interest, the peculiar satisfaction that lies in a sustained research when one is not hampered by want of money. It is a different thing from any other sort of human effort. You are free from the exasperating conflict with your fellow creatures altogether, at least so far as the essential work goes. That, for me, is its peculiar merit. Scientific truth is the remotest of mistresses. She hides in strange places. She is attained by tortuous and laborious roads. But she is always there. Win to her, and she will not fail you. She is yours, and mankind's forever. She is reality, the one reality I have found in the strange disorder of existence. She will not sulk with you, nor misunderstand you, nor cheat you of your reward upon some petty doubt. You cannot change her by advertisement or clamor, nor stifle her in vulgarities. Things grow under your hands when you serve her, things that are permanent as nothing else is permanent in the whole life of man. That, I think, is the peculiar satisfaction of science and its enduring reward. The taking up of experimental work produced a great change in my personal habits. I have told how already once in my life at Wimblehurst I had a period of discipline and continuous effort, and how, when I came to South Kensington, I became demoralized by the immense effect of London, by its innumerable imperative demands upon my attention and curiosity. And I parted with much of my personal pride when I gave up science for the development of Tono Bungay. But my poverty kept me abstinent and my youthful romanticism kept me chaste until my married life was well under way. Then, in all directions, I relaxed. I did a large amount of work, but I never troubled to think whether it was my maximum, nor whether the moods and indolences that came to me at times were avoidable things. With the coming of plenty, I ate abundantly and foolishly, drank freely, and followed my impulses more and more carelessly. I felt no reason why I should do anything else. Never at any point did I use myself to the edge of my capacity. The emotional crisis of my divorce did not produce any immediate change in these matters of personal discipline. I found some difficulty at first in concentrating my mind upon scientific work. It was so much more exacting than business, but I got over that difficulty by smoking. I became an inordinate cigar smoker. It gave me moods of profound depression, but I treated this usually by the homeopathic method, by lighting another cigar. I didn't realize at all how loose my moral and nervous fiber had become until I reached the practical side of my investigations and was face to face with the necessity of finding out just how it felt to use a glider and just what a man could do with one. I got into this relaxed habit of living in spite of very real tendencies in my nature towards discipline. I've never been in love with self-indulgence. 
That philosophy of the loose lip and the lax paunch is one for which I've always had an instinctive distrust. I like bare things, stripped things, plain, austere, and continent things, fine lines and cold colors. But in these plethoric times, when there is too much coarse stuff for everybody and the struggle for life takes the form of competitive advertisement and the effort to fill your neighbor's eye, when there is no urgent demand either for personal courage, sound nerves, or stark beauty, we find ourselves by accident. Always before these times, the bulk of the people did not overeat themselves, because they couldn't, whether they wanted to do so or not, and all but a very few were kept fit by unavoidable exercise and personal danger. Now, if only he pitch his standard low enough and keep free from pride, almost anyone can achieve a sort of excess. You can go through contemporary life fudging and evading, indulging and slacking, never really hungry, nor frightened, nor passionately stirred. Your highest moment, a mere sentimental orgasm, and your first real contact with primary and elemental necessities, the sweat of your deathbed. So, I think it was with my uncle. So very nearly, it was with me. But the glider brought me up smartly. I had to find out how these things went down the air. And the only way to find out is to go down with one. And for a time, I wouldn't face it. There is something impersonal about a book, I suppose. At any rate, I find myself able to write down here just the confession I've never been able to make to anyone face to face. The frightful trouble it was to me to bring myself to do what I suppose every other colored boy in the West Indies could do without turning a hair, and that is to fling myself off for my first soar down the wind. The first trial was bound to be the worst. It was an experiment I made with life, and the chance of death or injury was, I supposed, about equal to the chance of success. I believed that with a dawn-like lucidity I had begun with a glider that I imagined was on the lines of the Wright brothers' aeroplane, but I could not be sure. It might turn over. I might upset it. It might burrow its nose at the end and smash itself and me. The conditions of the flight necessitated alert attention. It wasn't a thing to be done by jumping off and shutting one's eyes, or getting angry or drunk to do it. One had to use one's weight to balance. And when at last I did, it was horrible. For ten seconds. For ten seconds or so, as I swept down the air, flattened on my infernal framework, and with the wind in my eyes, the rush of the ground beneath me filled me with sick and helpless terror. I felt as though some violent oscillatory current was throbbing in brain and backbone, and I groaned aloud. I set my teeth and groaned. It was a groan wrung out of me in spite of myself. My sensations of terror swooped to a climax, and then, you know, they ended. Suddenly my terror was over and done with. I was soaring through the air right way up, steadily, and no mischance had happened. I felt intensely alive, and my nerves were strung like a bow. I shifted a limb, swerved and shouted between fear and triumph, as I recovered from the swerve and healed the other way and steadied myself. I thought I was going to hit a rook that was flying athwart me. It was queer with what projectile silence that jumped upon me out of nothingness, and I yelled helplessly, Get out of the way! The bird doubled itself up like a partly inverted V, flapped, went up to the right abruptly, and vanished from my circle of interest.
Then I saw the shadow of my aeroplane keeping a fixed distance before me and very steady, and the turf as it seemed streaming out behind it. The turf! It wasn't after all streaming so impossibly fast. When I came gliding down to the safe spread of level green I had chosen, I was as cool and ready as a city clerk who drops off an omnibus in motion, and I had learned much more than soaring. I tilted up her nose at the right moment, leveled again, and grounded like a snowflake on a windless day. I lay flat for an instant, and then knelt up and got on my feet a-tremble, but very satisfied with myself. Cothope was running down the hill to me. But from that day I went into training, and I kept myself in training for many months. I had delayed my experiments for very nearly six weeks on various excuses because of my dread of this first flight, because of the slackness of body and spirit that had come to me with the business life. The shame of that cowardice spurred me nonetheless, because it was probably altogether my own secret. I felt that Cothope, at any rate, might suspect. Well, he shouldn't suspect again. It is curious that I remember that shame and self-accusation and its consequences far more distinctly than I recall the weeks of vacillation before I soared. For a time I went altogether without alcohol. I stopped smoking altogether, and ate very sparingly, and every day I did something that called a little upon my nerves and muscles. I soared as frequently as I could. I substituted a motor-bicycle for the London train, and took my chances in the southward traffic, and I even tried what thrills were to be got upon a horse. But they put me on made horses, and I conceived a perhaps unworthy contempt for the certitudes of equestrian exercise in comparison with the adventures of mechanism. Also, I walked along the high wall at the back of Lady Grove Garden, and at last brought myself to stride the gap where the gate comes. If I didn't altogether get rid of a certain giddy instinct by such exercises, at least I trained my will until it didn't matter. And soon I no longer dreaded flight, but was eager to go higher into the air, and I came to esteem soaring upon a glider that even over the deepest dip in the ground had barely forty feet of fall beneath it a mere mockery of what flight might be. I began to dream of the keener freshness in the air high above the beech woods, and it was rather to satisfy that desire than as any legitimate development of my proper work that presently I turned a part of my energies and the bulk of my private income to the problem of the navigable balloon. 2. I had gone far beyond that initial stage. I had had two smashes and a broken rib, which my aunt nursed with great energy, and was getting some reputation in the aeronautic world when, suddenly, as though she had never really left it, the Honorable Beatrice Normandy, dark-eyed and with the old disorderly wave of the hair from her brow, came back into my life. She came riding down a grass path in the thickets below Lady Grove, perched on a huge black horse and the old Earl of Carnaby and Archie Garvell, her half-brother, were with her. My uncle had been bothering me about the Crest Hill hot water pipes, and we were returning by a path transverse to theirs and came out upon them suddenly. Old Carnaby was trespassing on our ground, and so he hailed us in a friendly fashion and pulled up to talk to us. I didn't note Beatrice at all at first. I was interested in Lord Carnaby, that remarkable vestige of his own brilliant youth. 
I had heard of him, but never seen him. For a man of sixty-five, who had sinned all the sins, so they said, and laid waste the most magnificent political debut of any man of his generation, he seemed to me to be looking remarkably fit and fresh. He was a lean little man, with grey-blue eyes in his brown face, and his cracked voice was the worst thing in his effect. "'Hope you don't mind us coming this way, Ponderevo,' he cried, and my uncle, who was sometimes a little too general and generous with titles, answered, "'Not at all, my lord, not at all. Glad you make use of it.' "'You're building a great place over the hill,' said Carnaby. "'Thought I'd make a show for once,' said my uncle. "'It looks big because it's spread out for the sun.' "'Air and sunlight,' said the earl. You can't have too much of them. But before our time they used to build for shelter and water and the high road. Then I discovered that the silent figure behind the earl was Beatrice. I'd forgotten her sufficiently to think for a moment that she hadn't changed at all since she had watched me from behind the skirts of Lady Drew. She was looking at me, and her dainty brow under her broad-brimmed hat she was wearing a grey hat and loose unbuttoned coat, was knit with perplexity, trying, I suppose, to remember where she had seen me before. Her shaded eyes met mine with that mute question. It seemed incredible to me she didn't remember. Well, said the earl, and touched his horse. Garvel was patting the neck of his horse, which was inclined to fidget, and disregarded me. He nodded over his shoulder and followed. His movement seemed to release a train of memories in her. She glanced suddenly at him, and then back at me, with a flash of recognition that warmed instantly to a faint smile. She hesitated as if to speak to me, smiled broadly and understandingly, and turned to follow the others. All three broke into a canter, and she did not look back. I stood for a second or so at the crossing of the lanes, watching her recede, and then became aware that my uncle was already some paces off and talking over his shoulder in the belief that I was close behind. I turned about and strode to overtake him. My mind was full of Beatrice and this surprise. I remembered her simply as a Normandy. I'd clean forgotten that Garvel was the son and she the stepdaughter of our neighbor, Lady Osprey. Indeed, I'd probably forgotten at that time that we had Lady Osprey as a neighbor. There was no reason at all for remembering it. It was amazing to find her in this Surrey countryside. When I'd never thought of her as living anywhere in the world but at Bladesover Park, near forty miles and twenty years away. She was so alive, so unchanged. The same quick warm blood was in her cheeks. It seemed only yesterday that we kissed among the bracken stems. Eh? I said. I say he's good stuff, said my uncle. You can say what you like against the aristocracy, George. Lord Carnaby's rattling good stuff. There's a sort of savoir-faire. Something, it's an old-fashioned phrase, George, but a good one. There's a bong tong. It's like the Oxford turf, George. You can't grow it in a year. I wonder how they do it. It's living always on a scale, George. It's being there from the beginning. She might, I said to myself, be a picture by Romney, come alive. They tell all these stories about him, said my uncle, but what do they all amount to? Gods, I said to myself, but why have I forgotten for so long? Those queer little brows of hers, 
the touch of mischief in her eyes, the way she breaks into a smile. I don't blame him, said my uncle. Mostly it's imagination. That and leisure, George. When I was a young man, I was kept pretty busy. So were you. Even then... What puzzled me more particularly was the queer trick of my memory that had never recalled anything vital of Beatrice whatever when I met Garvel again, that had, indeed, recalled nothing except the boyish antagonism and our fight. Now, when my senses were full of her, it seemed incredible that I could ever have forgotten. 3. "'Oh, crikey,' said my aunt, reading a letter behind her coffee machine. "'Here's a young woman, George.' We were breakfasting together in the big window bay at Lady Grove that looks upon the iris beds. My uncle was in London. I sounded an interrogative note and decapitated an egg. "'Who's Beatrice Normandy?' asked my aunt. "'I've not heard of her before.' "'She the young woman?' "'Yes. Says she knows you. I'm no hand at old etiquette, George, but her line is a bit unusual.' Practically, she says, she's going to make her mother, eh? Stepmother, isn't it? You seem to know a lot about her. She says, mother, Lady Osprey. They're to call on me, anyhow, next Wednesday week at four. And there's got to be you for tea. Eh? You for tea. Hmm. She had rather force of character when I knew her before. I became aware of my aunt's head sticking out obliquely from behind the coffee machine and regarding me with wide blue curiosity. I met her gaze for a moment, flinched, colored, and laughed. I've known her longer than I've known you, I said, and explained at length. My aunt kept her eye on me over and round the coffee machine as I did so. She was greatly interested and asked several elucidatory questions. "'Why didn't you tell me the day you saw her? "'You've had her on your mind for a week,' she said. "'It is odd I didn't tell you,' I admitted. "'You thought I'd get a down on her,' said my aunt conclusively. "'That's what you thought,' and opened the rest of her letters. "'The two ladies came in a pony carriage with conspicuous punctuality, "'and I had the unusual experience of seeing my aunt entertaining callers.' We had tea upon the terrace under the cedar, but old Lady Osprey, being an embittered Protestant, had never before seen the inside of the house, and we made a sort of tour of inspection that reminded me of my first visit to the place. In spite of my preoccupation with Beatrice, I stored a queer little memory of the contrast between the two other women. My aunt, tall, slender, and awkward, in a simple blue home-keeping dress, an omnivorous reader, and a very authentic wit, and the lady of pedigree, short and plump, dressed with Victorian fussiness, living at the intellectual level of palmistry and genteel fiction, pink in the face, and generally flustered by a sense of my aunt's social strangeness, and disposed under the circumstances to behave rather like an imitation of the more queenly moments of her own cook. The one seemed made of whalebone, the other of dough. My aunt was nervous, partly through the intrinsic difficulty of handling the lady, and partly because of her passionate desire to watch Beatrice and me, and her nervousness took a common form with her, 
a wider clumsiness of gesture, and an exacerbation of her habitual oddity of phrase which did much to deepen the pink perplexity of the lady of title. For instance, I heard my aunt admit that one of the Stuart Durgan ladies did look a bit balmy on the crumpet. She described the knights of the age of chivalry as corvorting about on the off-chance of a dragon. She explained she was always old mucking about the garden. And, instead of offering me a Garibaldi biscuit, she asked me with that faint lisp of hers to have some squashed flies, George. I felt convinced Lady Osprey would describe her as a most eccentric person on the very first opportunity. A most eccentric person. One could see her, as people say, shaping for that. Beatrice was dressed very quietly in brown, with a simple but courageous broad-brimmed hat and an unexpected quality of being grown up and responsible. She guided her stepmother through the first encounter, scrutinized my aunt, and got us all well in movement through the house, and then she turned her attention to me with a quick and half-confident smile. "'We haven't met,' she said, "'since—it was in the Warren.' "'Of course,' she said, "'in the Warren. "'I remembered it all except just the name. "'I was eight. "'Her smiling eyes insisted on my memories being thorough. "'I looked up and met them squarely, "'a little at a loss for what I should say. "'I gave you away pretty completely,' she said, "'meditating upon my face, "'and afterwards I gave way Archie. "'She turned her face away from the others, "'and her voice fell ever so little.' They gave me a licking for telling lies, she said, as though that was a pleasant memory. And when it was all over, I went to our wigwam. You remember the wigwam? Out in the West Wood. Yes, and cried, for all the evil I had done you, I suppose. I've often thought of it since. Lady Osprey stopped for us to overtake her. My dear, she said to Beatrice, such a beautiful gallery. Then she stared very hard at me puzzled in the most naked fashion to understand who I might be. "'People say the oak staircase is rather good,' said my aunt, and led the way. Lady Osprey, with her skirts gathered for the ascent to the gallery, and her hand on the newel, turned and addressed a look full of meaning, overflowing indeed with meanings, at her charge. The chief meaning, no doubt, was caution about myself, but much of it was just meaning at large. I chanced to catch the response in a mirror, and detected Beatrice with her nose wrinkled into a swift and entirely diabolical grimace. Lady Osprey became a deeper shade of pink, and speechless with indignation. It was evident she disavowed all further responsibility as she followed my aunt upstairs. "'It's dark, but there's a sort of dignity,' said Beatrice, very distinctly, regarding the hall with serene tranquillity and allowing the unwilling feet on the stairs to widen their distance from us. She stood a step up, so that she looked down a little upon me, and over me, at the old hall. She turned upon me abruptly when she thought her stepmother was beyond earshot. "'But how did you get here?' she asked. "'Here? All this?' She indicated space and leisure by a wave of the hand, at hall and tall windows and sunlit terrace. "'Weren't you the housekeeper's son?' "'I've adventured. "'My uncle has become a great financier. "'He used to be a little chemist about twenty miles from Bladesover. "'We're promoters now, amalgamators, big people on the new model. 
I understand. She regarded me with interested eyes, visibly thinking me out. And you recognized me? I asked. After a second or so, I saw you recognized me. I couldn't place you, but I knew I knew you. Then Archie being there helped me to remember. I'm glad to meet again, I ventured. I'd never forgotten you. One doesn't forget those childish things. We regarded one another for a moment with a curiously easy and confident satisfaction in coming together again. I can't explain our ready zest in one another. The thing was so. We pleased each other. We had no doubt in our minds that we pleased each other. From the first we were at our ease with one another. So picturesque, so very picturesque, came a voice from above. And then, Beatrice! I've a hundred things I want to know about you, she said, with an easy intimacy, as we went up the winding steps. As the four of us sat at tea together under the cedar on the terrace, she asked questions about my aeronautics. My aunt helped with a word or so about my broken ribs. Lady Osprey evidently regarded flying as a most indesirable and improper topic, a blasphemous intrusion upon the angels. It isn't flying, I explained. We don't fly yet. You never will, she said compactly. You never will. Well, I said, we do what we can. The little lady lifted a small gloved hand and indicated a height of about four feet from the ground. Thus far, she said, thus far, and no farther. No. She became emphatically pink. No, she said again, quite conclusively, and coughed shortly. Thank you, she said to her ninth or tenth cake. Beatrice burst into cheerful laughter with her eye on me. I was lying on the turf, and this perhaps caused a slight confusion about the primordial curse in Lady Osprey's mind. Upon his belly shall he go, she said with quiet distinctness, all the days of his life. After which we talked no more of aeronautics. Beatrice sat bunched together in a chair and regarded me with exactly the same scrutiny, I thought, the same adventurous aggression that I had faced long ago at the tea-table in my mother's room. She was amazingly like that little princess of my Bladesover memories. The willful misbehaviors of her hair seemed the same. Her voice, things one would have expected to be changed altogether. She formed her plans in the same quick way and acted with the same irresponsible decision. She stood up abruptly. "'What is there beyond the terrace?' she said, and found me promptly beside her. I invented a view for her. At the further corner from the cedar she perched herself up upon the parapet and achieved an air of comfort among the lichenous stones. "'Now tell me,' she said, "'all about yourself. Tell me about yourself. I know such duffers of men. They all do the same things.' How did you get here? All my men were here. They couldn't have got here if they hadn't been here always. They wouldn't have thought it right. You've climbed. If it's climbing, I said. She went off at a tangent. It's, I don't know if you'll understand, interesting to meet you again. I've remembered you. I don't know why, but I have. I've used you as a sort of lay figure when I've told myself stories. But you've always been rather stiff and difficult in my stories, in ready-made clothes, a labor member, or a bradlaugh, 
or something like that. You're not like that a bit, and yet you are. She looked at me. Was it much of a fight? They make out it is. I don't know why. I was shot up here by an accident, I said. There was no fight at all, except to keep honest, perhaps, and I made no great figure in that. I and my uncle mixed a medicine and it blew us up. No merit in that, but you've been here all the time. Tell me, what have you done first? One thing we didn't do, she meditated for a moment. What? said I. Produce a little half-brother for Bladesover. So it went to the Philbrick gang, and they let it. And I and my stepmother, we let too, and live in a little house. She nodded her head vaguely over her shoulder and turned to me again. Well, suppose it was an accident. Here you are. Now you're here. What are you going to do? You're young. Is it to be Parliament? Heard some men the other day talking about you. Before I knew you were you. They said that was what you ought to do. She put me through my intentions with a close and vital curiosity. It was just as she had tried to imagine me a soldier and place me years ago. She made me feel more planless and incidental than ever. You want to make a flying machine, she pursued. And when you fly, what then? Would it be for fighting? I told her something of my experimental work. She had never heard of the soaring aeroplane, and was excited by the thought, and keen to hear about it. She had thought all the work so far had been a mere projecting of impossible machines. For her, Pilcher and Lilienthal had died in vain. She did not know such men had lived in the world. "'But that's dangerous,' she said, with a note of discovery. "'Oh, it's dangerous.' "'Beatrice!' Lady Osprey called. Beatrice dropped from the wall to her feet. "'Where do you do this soaring? Beyond the high barrows, east of Crest Hill, and the wood. "'Do you mind people coming to see? "'Whenever you please. Only let me know. "'I'll take my chance some day, some day soon.' She looked at me thoughtfully, smiled, and our talk was at an end. End of Book Third, Chapter Third, Parts 1 to 3 Recording by William Tomko.